0: I hope you're all well and that you've had a brilliant week. I feel rather like a wilting flower in this heatwave, not that I'm complaining, although I am complaining a little bit, and would rather be lying down being fanned and fed grapes and not sitting on the central line in London. (laughs) Anyway, this week I met with Laura, lovely Laura, and we had... A different kind of chat in many ways, but one that I think is really important and very interesting. We do all have really different relationships with food, and I think it's important to explore them and to talk about them. And I learned a lot from Laura. Plus, there are some delicious goodies in here too. Without further ado, here is today's episode. My guest today is Laura Freeman. Laura is an art critic, a writer, and an author. Her book came out earlier this year called The Reading Cure, and it's a very brave and thoughtful memoir about how reading about food helped her on the road to recovery from anorexia. Laura is a truly excellent writer, having gained a double first from Cambridge, and her book has had an amazing reaction. A review in The Independent said, The Reading Cure is the work of a true blue bibliophile, and it's impossible not to be seduced by Freeman's love of prose. It's essential reading, not just for those who love food, but who love words. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. (laughs) I loved reading your book, and I'm so excited to have you on Desert Island Dishes, so thank you. Food is so much more than just the food itself, um, which is what this podcast talks about a lot. I, for one, remember my life through the meals that I've eaten and the best moments are often with friends or celebrating happy occasions or holidays, and they're centered around meals. And food is such a central character in the story of so many of our lives. But I think it's wrong to think that everyone's relationship with food is, is straightforward. And obviously, everyone is completely different. There is no shared experience, but the way you write is just so eloquent Do you want to tell us in your own words about the book, your sort of elevator pitch? My
1: um, probably, I think an elevator pitch should be sort of five words. It's (laughs) going to be slightly longer than that. But um, I wanted to write a book that wasn't a misery memoir because while anorexia is a miserable illness and it would be wrong to pretend otherwise, it is not an illness without hope. And what I really wanted to do was to write a hopeful book, because I think when I was most ill, everything I ever read was always people talking about the very worst of the illness yeah, and almost sort of reveling in the most gory details, both the physical and the mental symptoms. And I don't deny that it's gory and grisly, but you can come out the other side. And because I have, I wanted to be able to tell that story. And particularly to be able to say that recovering from anorexia doesn't have to mean just eating enough through gritted teeth to keep yourself alive, but actually rediscovering pleasure and joy in food and cooking and sharing and, and eating with curiosity and adventure.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. And, and it's, you're so right. Like the book is so hopeful and I, yeah, it's, it's just such a fascinating read. And and to talk of different appetites, whilst you obviously have struggled with your appetite for food, your appetite for reading, it never went away. And that's just so interesting. Reading about how a good supper and a strong cup of tea could restore a tired body and defeated spirits, quickly, and it's a concept that you weren't familiar with. Food hadn't nourished you in that way for so long. And was, it was that description in particular that sort of really piqued your interest, wasn't it?
1: Well, that's a lo- it's a lovely line, and it's from a book called Bevis, which sadly isn't read as much as
0: it should be, I think, No, I'm now. ashamed that I haven't come across it. You're
1: not the only okay. one. <laughs> um, I think it, it suffers from being... It's, it's one of those novels that was written for children of a slightly different era, and it, it's long. Okay. Um, and, and the puffin versions are actually quite abridged, and even they are long. Oh. <laughs> um, so I think for, for a seven-year-old today, it, it's hard going. But um, Bevis is just the most wonderful... Creation because he's um, such an adventurer. Uh, he's got this extraordinary imagination, which lands him into all sorts of trouble. But he can't, you know. Every breath of wind is a genie, or it's a desert storm. And I think what was so attractive about him is everything he eats seems to be kind of brain fuel, so that you know he can do ever more exaggerated flights of imagination. And and he goes on this rafting trip in his father's grounds and, and they stay on an island, you know him and his mate, and then they have this supper and strong tea and it just has this incredible reviving effect, and that sort of got at something that had been lacking from my own life for such a long time i just food had become so much the enemy and something to avoid and Here was a little boy saying the food is, is is what perks you up and fills you with vim and vigour and, and a sense of spirit of adventure. So that was
0: a very, very important turning point yeah, for me. Yeah, that's amazing. Let's pause there and talk about the first Desert Island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood.
1: I I think it's mince pies. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I've got a December birthday. I, so I'm 12th of December, so it's sort of just far enough away from Christmas to insist that you've got to have separate presents oh, and course. a separate party. <laughs> um, and uh, I had a, a, I was very lucky to have a wonderful nanny when we were growing up. And she came when I was three and my brother was one and she stayed till we were 13 and 11. And she, she was a, a Mary Poppins sort of person. And she was a wonderful artist and a wonderful costume maker and the most extraordinary cook. Perfect. Um, it, yeah, I mean, we, my mum, you know, was at a moment of genius when, <laughs> when, when, she found Lorraine for us. And, uh, she was a brilliant, brilliant. Baker, and I, I'm in awe of her because while I'm a, a tolerable cook now, I I can't really bake. So for my birthday, she'd just do these incredible spreads. So you know there'd be a gingerbread house with icing and dolly oh. gems on the roof, and then trays of um, sugar mice and marzipan fruits and peppermint creams and. And gingerbread. bush oh, she's snowman. She's putting Mary Poppins to shame. <laughs> I, I think I think we lucked out. I think so. <laughs> um, and then she also used to do these mince pies. And, and the trouble is, no mince pie really has ever come up to Lorraine's standard. But really, little ones, you know, tiny cupcake or fairy cake even size, with very, very buttery pastry, you know, very generously filled. And then she would cut out marzipan stars to go on the top.
0: Oh my goodness. I think my mom must have copied Lorraine. That's <laughs> what we have at home. They're the best.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when it gets to December the 12th or every year. And I think I would do quite fancy immense
0: pie, but they're always such a letdown and never quite as good. I think there's definitely something to be said for the bite sized. You can just pop them in in one go. And I read that from a very young age, sort of the age of three or four, you had a passion for cold sliced tongue, which is very unusual.
1: Yes, I think as a, as a very small child, I did. I was slightly curious. I mean, I, I like really strong things like tongue and salamis. <laughs> and, you know, my, my, my dad likes things like that. Brisket was the other one. And if there was ever a packet open on the <laughs> countertop, you know, I'd sort of reach up and swipe. But it is still today. I think my tastes are quite savory. I you know, I'll eat gherkins by the barrel load. And other things that people find disgusting, like Branston pickle. And
0: <laughs> I liked a bit in the book where you were talking about how you just couldn't understand why Winnie the Pooh would get his head stuck in a pot of honey. But you said if maybe there were anchovies in there, you could maybe. Ask oh,
1: yeah. I mean, I do, I do remember what one, one evening at university and, you know, that thing of sort of looking in your student store cupboard and they did absolutely nothing. And I pretty much just had a sort of kit tin of anchovies for dinner. I thought, well, that, that, that'll do me.
0: <laughs> and your mum, she sounds like an amazing woman. And I know she's been your biggest supporter. Is she a keen cook? Yes, she is.
1: Um, she's both a keen cook and a keen gardener. Okay. So I think at this time of year, she's almost overwhelmed with lettuces and courgettes. And oh. she'll sort of say, know, would you like 45 gooseberries? Oh. <laughs> and you go, oh, I would like four gooseberries, but not 45 of them. Um, and I think partly for sort of falling in love with her garden and her greenhouse I think gave her this kind of new lease of life in the kitchen and, and, and that has transformed her into the most amazing cook.
0: Oh, how delicious. And and so tell us, how did the book come about? Because I believe it started life as an article for The Telegraph and you you wrote it and then felt like you had quite a lot more to say.
1: It, exactly. Um, I wrote the article for The Telegraph quite soon after going freelance. And I, I suppose I did it almost as a kind of tester of, of whether I would write a book about my experience. And I was quite apprehensive about the sort of reaction it would have. Um, and the Telegraph piece was the book in miniature in that it was having talking about being ill, uh, talking about the books I'd read, and then the foods I tried. And what was very heartening is the number of people who got in touch to say either that they themselves had been ill and they found it encouraging, and also two male friends of mine who had younger sisters who both sadly, you know, w- we're still struggling, and they said that it gave them and their parents hope. And I thought, well, actually, if this would encourage people, that then it would be
0: a book worth writing. Yeah, what an amazing reaction! And so it was in your mind that it could possibly be something bigger when you wrote that article. And is that quite common for books to start off as a article? Is that sort of the norm? Or
1: I don't know if it's the norm. I think it does happen quite a lot. I think particularly with journalists who who, who write book yeah and, and often it's somewhat the other way around that they'll write a book and someone will say oh, well, also oh, they'll write an article and
0: someone will say that could make a book or as I wrote the article and then said somebody somebody yeah. please take it on as a book um, <laughs> I know you've always loved reading have you always wanted to be a writer
1: I think so. I had sort of, I remember when I was about nine or 10 and changing rooms was on the television. I wanted to be interior decorator oh. <laughs>
0: um, for about, about a year
1: Didn't or so. Didn't everyone. <laughs> I think so. I was the Linda Barker of, yeah. of my generation. Um, but no, I think, I think really actually since I was very little. And, and you, you're sitting here in my flat between, you know, four million bookshelves and… Um,
0: yeah, it's… <laughs> pretty envy and you and you read or you you write about 169 books in the reading cure oh god is it that many yeah it's that many how long did did it take you to write uh
1: from beginning to end it was a bit over a year there was a a little bit of a break because what happens is you write the proposal and then then it all goes very quiet and you get extremely nervous and and then a publisher yes (laughs) um so that was a slightly nail-biting however long it was but actually as soon as I had the commission you you then feel you know you're you're raring to go uh and some of the books I I reread and
0: and made notes from and returned to yeah because I guess that's the thing is it had kind of been a lifetime's worth of research, hadn't it? So it was just going over old ground and obviously finding new, new, exciting things to write about. But yeah, so cool. Let's talk about the second Desert Island dish. That's the first dish that you learned to cook. Well,
1: when I was a About probably six or seven, there was an advert for Leon Pellerin's Worcester sauce that was always on television, sort of in the ad breaks of children's cartoons on a Saturday morning. (laughs) And uh, it showed a a slice of toast with melted cheese on the top going in under the grill with the Leon Pellerin's on top and then sort of exploding in these kind of Vesuvius-like eruptions and then melting and going all gooey. And my brother and I were taught by my dad how to make our own versions of the cheese on toast, and he would drag a chair for us to stand on so that we could see it, you know, melting in the in the oven and whip oh, it out when it was ready the best. from the grill. And I think cheese on toast—you've got to have it with cranberry juice because I think that Ooh. kind of acidity of the cranberry goes very well with the cheese.
0: Ooh, I feel like that's a top tip, <laughs> <laughs> and, I,
1: and I still have it. I think I think I, I've probably become more sort of snobby about the cheese and snobby about the bread, but the formula remains the same. Lots Liam What would be your go-to? Cheese. I still think a cheddar would be would be good, but yeah, yeah. probably probably not the kind of slightly rubbery no.
0: stuff we had as children. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm totally with you. Liam Perrins makes a cheese toasty. I think the power of words is really brought home in the reading cure, and your book really reminded me of the joy of reading about food, not necessarily in cookbooks. I myself read cookbooks like novels, and I read a lot anyway, but I've never read a collection of thoughts quite like yours before. You suffered from anorexia from the age of 14 and the process that you've been through as you've touched upon, not one of recovery or learning to eat, but more it's a journey of falling back in love with food and the joy of cooking. You have a really beautiful metaphor in the book about a library. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I was
1: reaching for a way to make what is a rather difficult, unruly and scary illness more understandable for people who've never lived with it or lived with anyone who suffers from it. And what I imagined was that if your healthy mind was a library, it would be a beautiful orderly room and all the books in their right shelves. And sadly, when anorexia has you in its grip, that library becomes a mess, the books fall on the floor, everything is chaos and disorderly, the lights don't work, the furniture is smashed, rain gets in at the windows. And I wanted to explain that anorexia isn't an illness about being thin or striving for thinness. It's about having a brain that just does not work and it's a frightening place to be in. Uh, so that was that was the metaphor I came up with. Yeah,
0: and it, it's beautiful and, and very effective. And I, I think it is still a surprise to a lot of people that anorexia is a mental illness. It doesn't have anything to do with vanity. It's sort of something else that takes over. And yeah, I think as you've already said, I can definitely see so many people finding this book just so incredibly insightful and, and useful. Something that really stayed with me from the book is, is you talk about making pea soup, but really it's the peas cooked in in the water that you that you cooked the peas in and and then refusing Nurofen because of the sugar coating. And I don't know why in particular, but those two points just really stayed with me. And I just, yeah, I can just imagine so many people learning so much from this book. We're moving on to the third Desert Island dish, and it's the best dish you've ever eaten.
1: This is a slightly funny one, because when I was trying to think what the best dish was I would have eaten, I I, I came up with the meal. I can remember the meal very particularly. It was a a first date with someone. It wasn't really meant to be a date at all. We (laughs) we thought we would just go and um, talk about books, having started talking about books at a party. And um, we went to the Quality Chop House in Farringdon. And it's the most wonderfully atmospheric place. And you sit in these little booths and it's like a 19th century pie and porter shop. And we had a startup a main course and a pudding and we stayed on for teas and coffees and having gone for lunch we were still there when they were chalking the dinner
0: menu up on the wall. That's the sign of a good date. <laughs> it
1: is um, and, and, and as a sort of
0: extra sign is you know I'm now getting married <gasps> oh, to this good. person. <laughs> I was thinking that whole time I hope that is your future so, husband so otherwise <laughs> <laughs> it does have a happy ending. Um, but I can't remember what we ate. Oh, well, that is a sign of a good date, isn't it?
1: So it's the best dish I've ever eaten. I remember the meal being wonderful, uh, but I can't tell you what we
0: had. (laughs) I'm going to accept that as an answer. Yeah, I think that's lovely. (laughs) Definitely. That's the first time that's happened, but I think it's definitely justifiable. A year after you left university and while in recovery, you came across a description in the memoir, A Fox Hunting Man, about a breakfast of boiled eggs served with toast, tea and cocoa. And that planted a thought in you, didn't it? So this was Secret Sassoon and it's his war memoirs was actually started before
1: the war. And he is a very sporty soul, which Lord knows I'm not. (laughs) And but he gets up very early in the morning, which is something I share with him. And he goes hunting. Uh, And on these very cold mornings, when there's frost on the ground, he has these boiled egg breakfasts. And uh, it just keeps him going. And I thought, but that's what food is for. It's not a sort of thing to be withheld or to punish yourself with. It's just the ballast you need to have a fulfilling life. And, um, you know, there's a little pot of boiled eggs behind me, and I had two of them this morning, and I have a boiled egg or two boiled eggs most days. And it doesn't half set you up and um give yeah. you a bit
0: of fire and energy. The best breakfast. But, yeah, that's such a nice way of thinking about it. Food at the very essence of its core is, is fuel mm-hmm. to, you know, fuel you through the day to do all of these amazing things. And and I guess you were reading about all these people living amazing lives and doing all these adventurous things. And, and that sort of, that must have been galvanizing in a way. Yes. And I I think it's partly the sense of fuel
1: and also just, uh, it's about sharing. And what was so nice is when Sassoon has these boiled eggs, he's often having them with his huntsman. He's having them with his friend, Dennis Milden, and that's partly why I picked the Chop House lunch, because actually sometimes you don't have to be too fussy about what the food is. If the company is right, it doesn't matter. And and the sort of inverse of that is that you can go for a Michelin starred meal, but if you're sitting opposite somebody ghastly, you know no amount of Michelin stars are going to save save the main course. Yeah,
0: it's so that is so true. And that's something that comes up time and time again on this podcast. Yeah, it it's very rarely just about the food, isn't it? Um, you decided to read all 16 Dickens novels in a year. And of that time, I love how you unpick the different characters. And you say that it's always the lovable characters in the books that are generous and convivial and that sharing their food, aren't they? And then conversely, it's always the baddies that <laughs> are mean about the food. <laughs> there, there's a particularly nasty character called Quilp in the old
1: curiosity shop who's sort of dwarfish and deformed uh, and he's very malevolent and scheming and there's this extraordinary scene where he bites the heads off prawns Mm. um, and there's this kind of savagery about that and I don't write about Quilp in the book because I'd written about him for an article elsewhere but it it made me think actually sort of this Grotesque way of eating, you know, it was very off-putting. and and, and then there are all these characters that um withhold food, you know, and 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 starve the children in their care, it happens to poor Oliver Twist, and it happens to the boys at Duthby's Hall and Nicholas Nickleby. And it just set up for me this idea that actually generosity and food and sharing and abundance were all actually very attractive qualities. Mm. They weren't something to shy away from, which which
0: had been my habit for a very long time. Yeah, that's so interesting. Do you think that was a purposeful sort of tactic of Dickens? Like do you think that was something that he was sort of doing fully aware?
1: I think there is there is an element to that. I think some people say oh Dickens is sort of morally black and white. And I think he's he is more complicated than that. But 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 I, I think food is is one of those threads that runs through it, you know, when someone is a goody, you know, they put mustard on mutton chops
0: yeah. <laughs> and
1: share it with you. And when someone is a baddie, they give you a bit of gristle and leave you to it. <laughs>
0: nobody wants the gristle and and then by the end of that year, you did read all of them and and you it sort of changed things a lot by that Christmas didn't it you and you ate Christmas pudding I did indeed um so I'd sort of I've read them in a slightly haphazard order but I thought well I'll save Christmas carol for, for, for
1: Christmas and so on Boxing Day which is when we tend to have the Christmas pudding because that's when my aunts and cousins come over and my mum brought it out I thought I don't want to be this sad sack in the corner peeling a clementine So, I tried a bit of the Christmas pudding, and I'm honest in the book that it was really only a spoonful, Uh, but it was a start. And I think sometimes it wasn't about eating a lot of anything. It was just saying, just try it, and the world won't end. And when it next comes around, have it
0: again and eat a bit more. That's amazing. Oh, that is amazing. The fourth desert island dish is what is your favorite sandwich?
1: It's very classic, um, and it's sort of quite millennial pink and feminine. (laughs) But um, I I like a smoked salmon and cream cheese with a bit of crest. Nothing wrong
0: with that, Laura.
1: (laughs) And I think although I'm not really sort of particularly into Wimbledon or Ascot. I think there's something about this season where you think, right, it's smoked salmon time and yeah. real cravings for it.
0: But also, interestingly, you're right. It, it's completely this time of year, but then also very suitable at Christmas. So I feel yes. like they've done a good PR job yeah. on the old smoked salmon yeah. sandwiches, haven't they? <laughs> and
1: it's my go-to snack for you a know, long train journey. You want a smoked salmon sandwich. And I remember quite early on in our Courtship. Um, Andy and I, we took the train to St Ives, and he was very long suffering that I was on this sort of um, obsession with going to places where Dickens and Virginia Woolf had been. Of course, (laughs) so he came all the way to St Ives so that I could see Virginia Woolf's lighthouse. And we had these smoked salmon sandwiches on the train that I had made, and you go along that very beautiful stretch um, towards the end of the journey where you're kind of following the sea. It was just so beautiful. Oh, yeah,
0: that is gorgeous. Like you're right on the edge of the the sea line with the waves yeah. sort of crashing at the windows. That is Amazing. the perfect place to have a railway picnic. Oh, yes. You talk in the book about the Francophile American M.F.K. Fisher, whose full name, Mary Frances Kennedy Fisher, and she had quite the appetite and loved cream and butter, more perhaps even than I. But she, along with Elizabeth David, really taught you and inspired you to have a go at cooking, didn't she? What was it about those two women in particular that inspired you? I think they, they both write so
1: beautifully. And I think almost their their words were such a turn on almost before their food was. Yeah. And I think with Fisher, I, I, she slightly floored me at the beginning because there is only so much foie gras yeah. <laughs> I can cope with. And, 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 and some of her, her, her memoirs of living in France, you know, it seems to be foie gras for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And that makes me feel a little bit faint but she also writes beautifully about salads and fruits and vegetables and and light things. I thought okay, well I can start there and we can work our way up to foie gras. I liked how you
0: talked about the bit where you sort of found a recipe for, I think it was for leeks and you sort of rejoiced and then you looked at it and she of course like covers them in a béchamel sauce. <laughs> oh, it,
1: it, every, everything is sort of and and then <laughs> add cream and then, oh no, you know come Mary Frances fishing you know, help me along. <laughs> <laughs> and I was very lucky that about the time I was reading the two of them, I was living with my friend, Olivia, who's a wonderful cook and I think instinctive in a, in a way that I'm probably more slave, you know, a slave to a recipe. And she would always be making a courgette cake or a beetroot bread or, or just something delicious and and, and experimental. And then she kind of gave me a nudge as well to, to to be a bit braver in the kitchen.
0: Yeah, that's a good combination. Also, you're saying that you're a slave to recipes, but that is literally just a case of practice yeah. and... Let's talk about Elizabeth David's perfect omelette technique, because you spend a little bit of time talking about it, and it sounds like you've you've got it mastered. It's break, beat, butter, and shake.
1: <laughs> and, and that's really it. And when I was trying to get to grips with omelettes, I watched endless YouTube videos, various celebrity chefs, and perhaps I shouldn't say who, they, they were always sort of, sort of turning the pan this way and prodding it with a fork and saying, pull this into the center and push that out to the side and fold that over there. And I would try that and I would end up with a sort of gloop that was yeah. cooked in all the wrong places. <laughs> and Elizabeth David's it's just, you know, get the pan very hot, lots and lots of butter, and leave it alone. And I think what I would add is 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 you have an omelette pan. I think several times at the beginning I was using a pan that was too big, so you get these sort of very thin, oh, like yeah. miserable omelets that sort of are burnt on the
0: bottom. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um and more like a pancake. And I, I did I did treat myself to in the, the cris sale to a little omelette pan and it's just perfect and it doesn't properly every time.
0: Yeah. No, things like that make such a difference, don't they? It's like having a little scrambled egg pan that's non-stick. Yeah. It's the key. Yeah, you do need a kit. <laughs> yeah. I would never be brave enough to make scrambled egg in a non-stick a non-non-stick pan. <laughs> the fifth Desert Island dish, what is the dish that you eat the most often?
1: It's my store cupboard staple uh, because actually you don't need very many fresh ingredients, but it's sardines. And so I love oily fish. I think I should have scales and fins <laughs> and flippers. Um but it's it's sardines, it's uh, Santini or Pomodorino tomatoes, and then capers, olives, basil, a uh, bit of black pepper, bit of chili, and really frankly anything else you want to throw mm. in there. Um, Sounds really good. And you just cook it on a low heat, and all the tomatoes break down, and they go kind of almost slightly caramelized, and then then you have a sort of a thin pasta or not, not a thin pasta, but a little pasta like a rigatoni, mm. um, and that's just top-notch. And I think if you're ever coming back from a holiday and think like, oh, I'm standing at Heathrow and I'm in the passport queue and this is taking forever. And all you need to do is buy some basil and tomatoes at the MS. and and then you get home and you make it from everything else that's in the cupboard. And it's
0: so restorative. Yeah, that sounds gorgeous. And yeah, you're so right. It's when you land back from a holiday that you really need something like that. I'm definitely going to be trying that one out. You talk about the time when clean eating and the rise of wellness bloggers began to emerge and how difficult that time was. You sort of, here you were on the the verge of recovery and suddenly newspapers, magazines, everywhere we turned, people were talking about restrictive eating, clean eating. And you talk about it, trying to seek refuge in Elizabeth David. You say, I searched in Elizabeth's books for recipes with which to stop my ears. And I wondered, how, how did you weather that storm, particularly being a journalist where it must have been sort of, you, you, there was no escape. It was everywhere.
1: It was not a great time. No. Uh, I think it coincided with a period where I, I'd worked for four years in, in the newsroom of a, of a paper. I was very tired. I'd been working very long shifts and I probably needed a change I wanted to go freelance and I I got quite low and I found my eating became rather restricted again. Looking back, I think I was almost lucky to have been anorexic at the time I was when really the worst you had to contend with was the Atkins diet. Yeah. (laughs) That was the big fad when I was 13 or 14. Um, I'm very troubled by what I see in the papers and on blogs and on Instagram, and this collective mania for the idea that we should all be vegan, that we are all gluten intolerant, that none of us can digest dairy, that really we shouldn't eat any sugar at all, not even in dried fruit or fresh mm-hmm. fruit. Um, it's simply not true. If you are a celiac, I completely yeah. accept. Uh, If that you can't eat (laughs) gluten, but the vast majority of us can eat all of this stuff with great pleasure and very little digestive trouble. And what a shame to deprive yourself and, and to restrict really not only what you eat, but you know, whether you can travel, whether you can turn up at someone's house and eat what's offered for them, whether you yeah. can go away for the weekend without worrying,
0: I know it's so so many of those ways of eating its sort of you do feel like it's had all the joy stripped from the food, hasn't it and and I think it's it's difficult because with extreme dieting or disordered eating, there's often the excuse that people are being healthy, but mm-hmm. it's not it's not healthy, is it? but I think that's sort of an often used excuse almost to make it seem socially acceptable.
1: I always remember when I was taken to see my GP when I was 16 and I said, you know, I'm very cold all the time and I'm very tired and my hair is falling out and I simply don't understand it because I eat such a healthy diet. I eat nothing but apples and peas. And, yeah. you know, his eyes went as wide as saucers and he said, that's not healthy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think this healthy or this wellness um, moniker um, can
0: be a cover for something that isn't, isn't healthy or well at all. Definitely. You have some very excellent advice in the face of wisdom about superfoods, chia seeds, kale, turmeric. And I wondered if perhaps you could read it out for us. Well,
1: This is, this is my manifesto. Eat cold cherry tart after cricket. Eat a gypsy stew to make you strong. Eat sardines and sausages for winter carols. Eat buttered rolls on top of hayricks. Don't make a Marshall seat prison of rules for yourself. No biscuits at tea. no meat in the week. No pudding, not ever. Don't be Amy Dorrit alone at the mantelpiece when you might be Pickwick dividing veal pie between friends. Oh,
0: new motto in life, always be more pickwick. <laughs> Laura, we're on to the sixth Desert Island dish, and that's your go-to dinner party dish. Well, I probably
1: do what you're not supposed to do, which I often think, I know I'll try something you new. Laura knows I that know. is the number one rule. I know, I know it is. But in a way, when you feel you've got victims, you think, OK, well, you're going to be <laughs> you're going to be my guinea pig. Um, so then I say, I know I'll do an Ottolenghi recipe that has 4,000 ingredients. I remember the first dinner party I ever had in this flat. I invited a friend who lived around the corner and his flatmate. Um, and he called up the day before and he said, Oh, Laura, you know I had this operation on my stomach. And I said, Oh gosh, so you did. And he said, Well, I can't eat any, and then reeled off oh, this list of no. things. And then he said, And my flatmate's a vegan. Oh no. And I remember, and I'd already done, done the food shopping and thought, oh, you absolute cretins. And I was so cross. Anyway, so I m- managed to cobble something together. But um, my my new thing is that I just tend to do a whole smorgasbord of things and different plates and you know beautiful kind of jeweled ottolenghi type salads and then maybe cold roast chicken at this time of year and then I think you
0: you just pick what you want I'm not going to force anything on you yeah um, that's that's my favorite way of eating but I'm I'm interested that you do go down the route of trying new dishes for a dinner party have you had any disasters. I don't think I've yet had a catastrophe and I
1: always think, oh, you know, well, there's a nice place called Yahala on the corner and we'll just go and get shawarma's. Um yeah. But I also take inspiration. I've got a, a friend called Yamas, who's a brilliant, brilliant cook and incredibly generous. And, you know, we'll get up at four in the morning when everyone's coming for dinner and just cook all day. Oh, wow. And he does these salads and I always think of them as sort of, you know, Yamas' big sexy salads because <laughs> you sort of start with a grain and then you just build up and build up and you've got to, you know, you have pomegranate and you have feta and you have Char grilled broccoli with soy sauce, and you just throw everything that you've got at it. And I just think that idea of of just super abundance is is very attractive and appealing, especially when you've got guests coming.
0: Big sexy salad. I think we need to <laughs> trademark that. And <laughs> <laughs> um, you say your dad makes an amazing bubble and squeak, which you were reminded of when you read Wind in the Willows. And Toad has given it, and it sounds like Nigel Slater makes a very good version of the bubble and squeak. It's definitely one of those dishes that is much more delicious than it kind of deserves to be. What's your dad's secret? Well, my dad's not a, not a, not not the cook in
1: the house. Okay, as, as a rule, um, <laughs> so he has. One, is that his one dish? I mean, yeah. Well, that and sort of a hamburger and salad, which I don't yeah. think really counts as cooking. <laughs> I don't know what his secret is. I think maybe it needs a bit of sort of manly muscle. Because Nigel Slater's recipe is sort of, you know, you've got to get a shake it, you've got to rumble it, you know, it's got to have a bit of kind of grit and, and 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 sort of energy to it. So maybe that's the thing, maybe you just need a strong manly arm to shake the pan. Maybe I'm sort of too kind of, you know, weak. Yeah. To-
0: Yeah, that's the the top. I mean, I hadn't thought of Nigel being particularly manly before, (laughs) but I like that. I mean he is. Bishop
1: brawn to the (laughs) apparatus.
0: This is a difficult question, but of all the books you've read, and we've already said there are 169 in in the reading cure, but obviously you've read far more than that. What what is your favourite? Does it have to be a cookery book? No. Anything. Anything.
1: I think I would have and it's a bit of a cheat because it's six volumes, but I think I would have the six volumes of Virginia Woolf's Complete Diary because whenever I feel low or sad or homesick or have a cold, you can pick it up on any day of any year and read something illuminating. And I really mean that in the sense of sort of shining light on life. Uh, She is someone who we know had very, very dark periods, but also found, I think... uh, joy and specialness in little things. And I loved the way she wrote about food and she had difficulties eating at times. Her sister was a painter. And I think Virginia Woolf writes about food as a painter paints. It's all kind of color and luminosity. And I found something very stirring in in, in how, how she described blackberrying or finding mushrooms on the Sussex Downs. So I think I would take her with me
0: to a fictional desert island to read. God, Laura, I could hear you um, talk about fiction forever. And Laura, tell us which cookbook you would like to add to the Desert Island Dishes Hall of Fame. I think I'd have Claudia Roden. Because she is a scholar and
1: a historian and she whets your appetite and she makes you want foods that you don't even normally like. Yeah, She wrote a whole book about coffee and I'm not a coffee drinker. It makes me incredibly jittery. And the last time I had a cup in New York, I thought I was having a hard attack in <laughs> at Central Park and I had to go back to my hotel to have a lie down. Um, but I read her coffee book and I was sort of craving it like mad. And I think she has this extraordinary ability, whether she's writing about Spain or Italy or the Middle East, to just transport you. You know, you are there in a monastery where they make these Beautiful, delicate little biscuits,
0: Uh, and and so I think she'd be a wonderful travelling companion wherever you were going in the world. That was a great addition. We're on to the final seventh desert island dish, and that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island.
1: I think this is the easiest question. Um, I didn't have to think about it for more than about half a second. Great. Which it would be the Sunday lunch that my mum makes in the sort of the prodigal daughter comes home (laughs) sort of way, Um, and it's roast chicken. And it has to come from Henry the Butcher in Hook Norton. Okay, And uh, she puts fennel and red onion and pancetta and her own homegrown potatoes in the pan, and which makes the most incredible gravy at the end. And it comes out of the agar. And there's something about my mum's agar that just gets the skin so crispy that it's like papyrus and broad beans from the garden and uh, carrots caramelized with a bit of butter and sugar and then parsley on top. And then a can I keep going to pudding? Yes, And then please. a crumble for pudding with whatever fruit is currently, she's got a glut off. So it'll be apples in the autumn and rhubarb uh, in January. And it'll be gooseberries at this time of year. With then sort of quite a sour, natural yogurt to go to go with it. Because I like a kind of oh my goodness. a of brown sugar crunch on the top of the crumble. And then you need the yogurt to counter that.
0: That sounds amazing. God, I'd be rocking up at your mum's house every day. (laughs) More the merrier. (laughs) Laura Freeman, those were your Desert Island dishes. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Some great recipes from Laura there, plus input from 169 authors. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed listening. Don't forget to go to the website desertislanddishes.co for the full list of episodes, plus the recipes I've created inspired by each episode. This week is my version of a big sexy salad. And I have to say, as salads go, this one is pretty sexy. Come and say hi on Instagram, where oh, very excitingly, I've had a name change. You can now find me at Margie Namora because that is now my name. And other than that, thank you so much for listening. Bye.